Welcome, everyone, to Streaming Water Podcast. I'm your host, Blair Corning. Thank you for being with us today uh, for season two, first episode of season two. And we have a great guest today to talk about machine learning. We have uh, Katya Billick from Hazen and Sawyer, an expert in the field of machine learning, which I've been curious about for a while. We've, we've heard about. It's the, one of the hot topics. So thank you for being with us today, Katya. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right. Well, maybe you can uh, give the listeners a little bit about your background, where you're, uh, where you're from, where you work, and, and how you got into this machine learning business. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I'm based out of Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, I have been working in the water industry for about 20 years now. Um, went to Virginia Tech for my bachelor's and um, UNC Chapel Hill for a master's program in environmental engineering. And um, I've been focusing on um, wastewater treatment plant design and optimization and really interested in biological nutrient removal specifically. Um, So I've done like all kind of like the bio and modeling and treatment plant optimization and just really focusing on the microbiological processes there. And then um, in the last four or so years, I got interested in machine learning and um, took some classes in that and learned uh, to code in Python and started applying that to um, problems in the water industry. And um, I guess most recently that culminated in a project for Raleigh Water where um, we created an influent flow prediction tool. Uh, So it predicts flow to the wastewater treatment plant 72 hours in advance, and it runs every hour. And they use it to um, manage their wet weather, I guess, like standard operating protocol. So um, they've got a big equalization basin. And um, now with this foresight to know the shape of the hydrograph, they can use that piece of infrastructure much more efficiently to minimize the flow going through the plant and then therefore maximize the amount of treatment um, that they re- that both wastewater receives when it's raining. Nice. That's kind of it in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Well, how did you get into this? Uh, well, engineering in general, wastewater uh, engineering, and then uh, machine learning, what kind of brought you over to that? Yeah, so that's going way back to how did I pick engineering? Um, yeah, I yeah, we're going way really back. <laughs> Getting the way back machine. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, in high school, I really liked science. And um, we always got to pick, like, two electives. And for whatever reason, I always picked two science classes. Um, so there was always that interest. Um, I did a lot of, like, summer exposure kind of programs. So there were, like, a lot of things aimed at like recruiting more women into the engineering field. Um, so I got a chance to like go to a couple of different colleges for like, you know, a weekend or like a five day program and get exposed to all the different kinds of engineering. Um, so by the time I was a senior in high school, I knew that like that would be a good fit for me. So that's just how I got into engineering. And then I got into like the water, wastewater, I guess, environmental field because, um, my first year in college, there was a class called like, I don't remember the name of it, but it was all about like global environmental problems. So that just like really, I don't know, it really interested me, it opened my eyes to a lot of things. And we had this civil engineering 
school with an environmental option. So I figured like that was sort of my best chance to like get the skills to work on these big global problems. And uh, then the first like water wastewater class I took was just, I guess like it was kind of a combination of being good at it and being interested at the same time. Um, it was super neat to be like, wow, there's actually this process already established for like, you know, how we make water drinkable and how we clean up the wastewater. And I always thought the, the microbiology part was like super, super fascinating and really continued to be true. Uh, so when I was looking for a job, I guess I kind of had that wastewater focus in mind um, and kind of moved around a little bit, a couple of different locations and um, was sort of struggling for the right combination of a place I want to live and an office that would really allow me to like focus on nutrient removal. And uh, in 2006, I guess I finally found that right mix and uh, joined Hazen and Sawyer in Raleigh. And um, a whole like Chesapeake Bay rules were just coming out. So there was like, I don't know, like 15 design projects that I got to work on that were all nutrient removal related, kind of in like my first two or three years. And then I got to see them all built and then like how they operated and, you know, like supplemental carbon was like a new thing that had just sort of come onto the scene as a, an ability to meet really low total nitrogen limits. So it was neat to like, follow that, what different carbon sources were there, how well did they work. Um, so I just really like stayed in touch with like the follow-up of like, here's what we built, but does it work? And, you know, yes, it did. It worked well. And then just, you know, from there it kind of went into like an optimization phase. So it just sort of went like that for about a decade. Like nice. super awesome, <laughs> really liking everything. Yeah. And then machine learning kind of came in there with, um, I found this um, clothing company called Stitch Fix. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. I have not heard of Stitch Fix, no. So it's um, a clothing company where you like fill out this survey and they ask you questions like they show you these pictures and they're like, do you like these clothes? And later I figured out that they were like categorized by different styles. Like this one is preppy and this one is edgy and things like that. So basically they gave you a survey and they also ask you some information about like, you know, what kind of job you have? How old are you? Um, it's like, this is like FBI profiling for clothes. <laughs> I like it. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I like it. It's gonna, it seems a little <laughs> scary actually. So it has, it has a very good outcome. Um, so then the whole purpose of that is they will send you five pieces of clothing. You know, if you like them, you keep them, you pay for them. If you don't like them, you send them back. And, you know, I really liked them. And what actually really amazed me was that they all like fit really well. So I kind of started doing it every month. And I got really interested in the company. Like, how are they doing this? Right? Like, they don't know anything about me. All they had was like that survey. And then you start giving them feedback on things they send you. So they like keep learning. But that company actually has like one of the largest data science teams of like any tech firm, like, um, the person who worked for Netflix and like made their recommendation engine actually joined Stitch Fix and ran their data science group for a number of years. Wow. So yeah, so this whole concept of like recommendation engines, I think is like what got me interested. And then there's, I don't know how I probably just started Googling or whatever. And I found this um, website called Udemy. It's like U-D-E-M-Y.com. I think it's a mixture of like university and academy. I have heard of that, yeah. 
Okay. And they had like an online class on like recommender systems. And it was to learn how to make one in Python. And it was like $10. So I was like, well, I really can't go wrong um, if I try this. A lot cheaper than a master's degree. Yeah. <laughs> so it was really low risk. Um, and it was really interesting. I think we made like a movie recommendation engine. Um, I remember like it, you know, linked you to a database of publicly available information on movies and like movie reviews or something. It did this sort of like, I guess it probably used um, the like K nearest neighbor type of evaluation. So I think that was like the purpose. It was like, if this person liked these were their top five movies, you might recommend this other one to, yeah. to them. And yeah, the, the only thing there, with that, I've done that on Netflix. And if you watch, like, you go kind of on a, you go off the rails and you uh, watch it, just a dumb movie. And then it starts to be like, oh, I see you like dumb movies. Here's a bunch of dumb movies. And you're like, no, that was just, I was having a bad day. I don't, that's not my kind of movie. But then it'll, it'll stereotype you and give you a million dumb movies you should watch. But I digress. Go ahead, Katjes. Oh, no. Well, that's actually like a really good comment because I don't think that Netflix's recommendation engines are very good either. Um, like it, the stuff it recommends to me, it's like, I don't find it to be all that compelling. And it, I actually want to go in there and be like, they should start like, because I wonder like what features or what variables are they using? Are they using like strong female character? Are they using like high school setting? Like they should, in my opinion, um, de delineate that more and they could make better recommendations. Like if they actually tried to learn what it is you liked. Um, and a lot of data science is like, kind of vague like that. Like there is no textbook you can go to that's like people who are this age um, and live in this state like this kind of show, right? Like that's not a science. That's, yeah. It's, it's like too specialized to be a science. But what's interesting is like in the water industry, we already know why a lot of things happen. So that's where I think it's like really, really cool to take what we do know and use it to sort of like accelerate the learning that should be happening in the model um, because you don't have to start completely from scratch. There's a bunch of stuff that like um, if you're trying to predict effluent ammonia and all you have is treatment plant data, you'd have like 12,000 data points. Um, but really, you know, what matters is like temperature, pH, you know, concentration, right? Like things like that. So you really only need like three to seven variables to make a really good empirical model. But yeah, the Netflix people don't know that and the Stitch Fix people <laughs> don't know that either. So yeah, it's been interesting. It's weird to me that the Netflix, I get with the, the science side with the wastewater modeling that's based on science. The other seems to be like, our whole lives were taught, don't stereotype people, don't group people up. If you're this, if you're this age, you do this. Like we're taught, like, don't do that. But then that's exactly what Netflix does. That's exactly what, you know, some of these companies do is say, if you're this, then you act like this and you will like this, you know, it's, it's so it's, it's, it's always weird to me. It's also weird. Like sometimes I'll just be thinking of like the other day I was thinking like, I need a new toothbrush and I didn't say it out loud. I have a, you know, <laughs> echo in my bathroom or whatever. Uh, but I didn't say it out loud. And then I get to, you know, get to work, get on my computer. And there's like, here's a, here's some toothbrush selections for you. Pick a tooth. And I'm like, how, like, it's weird. It's like, it gets kind of big. Brother. Kind of scary. Yeah. Yeah. I know they're in my head. They're in my head. 
All right. Well, what about yeah. hobbies? What about hobbies, Kaji? When you're not when you're not doing uh, modeling on ammonia, what do you do in your free time? Um, so I like to read a lot. I like to spend time with my family. Um, we also got a, a new puppy in February. So um, oh, COVID, COVID puppy. Time. Yes. <laughs> what yeah. kind of what kind of dog you got? It's a Havanese. So he is about like about 12 to 15 pounds. Um, he's really small and nice and they're kind of known for being like a, like a Velcro dog. Like they like to be by their owners all the time. Nice. Um, so sweetie, when he's not crazy, he's like the nicest creature to be around. Like he just like snuggles right up next to you on the couch. Um, I also like to watch a lot of TV uh, to like decompress. So um, I'm like, one of those people who still watches like Survivor and like some other reality shows that have been around for a really, really long time. So I like to do that to relax too. Yeah. I used to watch, we were talking about Survivor uh, yesterday in the office, like how long it's been around and like, it's just a solid show. We like that Jeff Probst. I don't think I bet he was like, what am I getting into 20 years later? He's had, you know, the job of a lifetime. You get to go to islands, host the show. Like, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, uh, now the interesting question. Uh, well, I don't know if it's interesting, but uh, uh, what would you name your boat if you had a boat? What would what would you name it? So that is an interesting question uh, because I have never considered owning a boat or buying a boat. Um, I feel like I would be such an atypical boat owner so like probably some name that reflects that like the outlier or um something like extremely like feminist for a name like i don't know it would just be something real like i don't know just reflective of those feelings <laughs> all right all right the outlier i like that i like that all right let's get into the topic though <laughs> we're here to talk about uh we've talked a little bit about machine learning but can you for our listeners, just kind of sum up, what is machine learning? What's this whole thing? Yeah. What, what's the, what does machine learning mean? Yeah. So um, there's this picture that I love um, that explains it really well, but it's, it's just learning from data. And um, it's a pretty simple picture. So it's got, um, with regular modeling, I guess, like you um, give something data and you give it um, the equation to work into and it spits out an answer but with machine learning you give it the input and you give it the answer and it spits out the equation so does that make sense like yeah it's it kind of does out how you get to the answer for yeah. you so like would have been nice to have like in high school right yeah it would have been very nice <laughs> So, like, in theory, that's how it should work. So, like, we should be able to take any, um, like, like the Manning equation, and you feed all those variables into it, and then you give it the answer. And it should be able to figure out what the Manning equation is, like, all those relationships. So, when I think about it that way, I'm like, let's use this to figure out some things that we don't yet know about um, the water industry, like um, how flood settles is. I think, well, I know it's like a very important question and there's a lot of research going into the topic of like densification right now, which is just the idea of making like floods that reliably settles really, really quickly and has a low flood volume index. 
you know, like 80 or less. And so some people address that with like making granules. Um, but I think what well, we also see a lot of treatment plants that just have conventional activated sludge, but the FBI is, you know, 79 for 10 years straight. And you're like, wow, how are they doing that? Um, so we've investigated a couple um, data sets to see how we can predict FBI and like by the way you select what variables you put into the model, um, if you can get a good representative model and a good prediction, then you kind of learn something about the, the problem. Um, and you can also like get more transparent models that will actually let you make um, like something called like a feature importance table. It's what will tell you like the percent influence that each of the variables that you put into the model has on the model. Um, so if you have like 77 variables and they all influence the model like 1.3%, that's not very interesting. But if you have a model with five variables and one of them has like a 40% influence and you didn't know that before, then you've learned something new about your field. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, that is good. I've often uh, ran into that or been guilty of it too, where you think like uh, this is caused by this and it's just your assumption or your I don't know, your belief from somewhere. And if you look at it, you know, statistically, you're like, it has nothing to do with that. I mean, it happens in life. It happens in wastewater where you're like, this has no bearing yeah. on that or a very small amount of bearing. And I'm putting so much time into this 1% when I should be putting it into this other, you know, 99%. So, yeah, that's interesting. So I think when uh, a lot of people hear about machine learning or automation even, you know, they, they think, well, this is this is going to take take over my job and computers are going to run everything. But I, you know, I don't think that's, that's what you're talking. Where do, where does the, the human side, where do operators fit? Where do engineers fit? Where do uh, plant managers fit in this whole machine learning equation? Yeah. So I think that machine learning is a way to help people make better informed decisions. So I don't see it replacing people um, in any way. I think that a little bit of automation, um, if you get a really reliable predictive algorithm, um, like for example, um, let's say Raleigh Water let this influence flow prediction tool run for five years and it had a, an accuracy of like plus or minus 10 MGD for um, any point during the event, um, the, the wet weather event, which actually was its um, accuracy in the first year of deployment but like yeah let's say that continues for a really long time you probably could then feel confident um saying i am going to automate when my equalization basin starts filling itself um and i'm gonna leave like a 15 percent buffer or something like that right so i don't plan to fill up the whole thing but i fill it up 85 percent automatically without having to think about it and then that just gradually over time makes the operator's life a little bit easier but i don't ever really see that i don't know like in our lifetime i don't think it's going to replace anyone's job or or take over um i think also there's a lot of like times when you're sitting at a treatment plant and running it and you might wonder like gosh it would be nice to know how many times a situation like what's happening today has happened in the past and what was the outcome? What was the effluent quality? Or like, what operational changes led to the best effluent quality? And um, 
machine learning can tell you that about your data, or sometimes just a really good data visualization tool can let you kind of like sort through your data and say, you know, find similar temperatures, similar flows, um, and then tell me, right, like what's the sort of optimal geo regime or something like that for a day like today. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, like the operation side. Um, on the engineering side, I mean, I, I do see engineers getting involved in creating these algorithms. Me, along with integrators, already, when we design a treatment plant, we're like um, writing out functional control descriptions, which is like an outline for how a unit process or piece of equipment should operate. And a lot of times there's like different modes of operation, right? Like if you have a... Uh, supplemental carbon feed system, you have like a manual, you paste control where you just say, I want to feed five gallons per hour of glycerin, and it just does that. Or you might have flow paste, um, or you might have a nutrient sensor paste mode. Um, so I see it just kind of like, as we think about what else we could do with machine learning, it's like, well, can I, is there something that I wish I could predict that would give me a better uh, results like reduced chemical costs or even lower nutrient concentrations in my effluent or better settling. Um, so it just gives us another tool to like continue to, I like to view it as making operators lives easier and giving them more options, but um, you have to talk to an operator somewhere where I've designed a plant to see if that's actually true. Yeah, <laughs> Hopefully it I'm, is. I'm sure it is. Yeah. Operators, uh, need all the tools they can get it's getting more complex every day with the the treatment processes and just the science i mean we're talking now about i mean it's sludge settling right but the science that goes into it and the the sludge volume index and the density and the you know granules it's just amazing how much science goes into these these uh natural natural processes and how we can optimize them so yeah, that's good. Yeah. All right. Are you ready for the uh, mid-show segment? Yes. Okay, well, the mid-show segment. Do you like oysters? No. No, me neither. I don't like them. But uh, this is about oysters. So this is on uh, CNN. Okay. This is an article. It says, uh, Scottish oysters were on the rocks. Now a whiskey distillery is throwing them a lifeline. So I'll just read from this uh, CNN article. Uh, and it's from Dornock Firth, which I love that name. Scott, it's totally Scottish. Uh, I don't know what a Firth is, and, but Dornock Firth uh, in Scotland. Professor William Sanderson, or Bill, as he likes to be known, wades into the shallows of the Dornock Firth as the sun breaks over the ragged skyline of the Scottish Highlands, turning the waters gold. Something in the water catches his eye, and he stoops to pick it up. This is a European native oyster, he explains, they used to be very abundant in this site thousands of years ago, right up to the 1800s. The shell in his hand is flatter and rounder than the faster-growing Pacific oysters common in European restaurants today. It is also very rare, having been fished almost to extinction in British waters during the Industrial Revolution. Rail networks opened up urban markets, and uh, so they overfished the oysters. Uh, I'll just summarize this. At the time, oysters were considered a poor man's food, and sold as street food, says Saunderson. You could even pay your rent in oysters in Edinburgh if you wanted to, which is, that's interesting to pay your rent in oysters. I like that. I wish you could do that today. <laughs> um, so yeah, but there's a glimmer of hope for the indigenous oysters of the UK. Beneath these waters is a marine 
rewilding project that has transformed the Dornock Firth, a deep, narrow strip of water off the northeast coast of Scotland. The Dornock Environmental Enhancement Project, or DEEP, began in 2014 and has to date seen the successful reintroduction of 20,000 European oysters on the Firth's bed. The aim is to increase that number to a self-sustaining population of 4 million by 2025. And then it goes on to, uh, to explain how this distillery, the, uh, I forgot what the, the Glen Morangi, do you drink scotch at all? No. No. Uh, no, I, there's no scotch, oh. no boats. <laughs> all right, no, no scotch, no boats. All right. Well, anyway, the Glen Morangi Distillery, I guess, is right on this Firth, and they got in this partnership because they wanted to, uh, you know, do something for the environment, give back to the environment that uh, was surrounding their distillery. So uh, they funded this project, and they're bringing back these European oysters. So, uh, wow. what? Do you think? Yeah, it's it's crazy. It reminds me of like uh, coral, you know, they're always trying to rebuild the coral, but I, yeah. uh, I didn't know about these oysters. So, yeah. All right. Well, no boats, no, no scotch, uh, but machine learning. Let's get back into that. Uh, <laughs> so you give me some examples uh, of machine learning, but how do, how do you bring these projects uh, to life? Can you kind of take us through the steps to bring a machine learning project, like you mentioned, you know, modeling ammonia or giving operators insight yeah. on the sludge shed. Like how, how do you go about, I mean, you make it sound easy, but take us kind of, if you could take the listener step by step through how you get there. Yeah. So um, it all kind of starts, and this is, you know, kind of obvious, but with just this like business case evaluation, like you have to come up with a problem that is worth solving. Um, just, yeah. So um, Predicting influence flow, I think, is a really valuable one for a lot of wastewater treatment plants around the country. What weather flows can be like three to five times the regular dry weather flow and wreak kind of havoc. <laughs> uh, you don't want to lose like your solids and the secondary clarifiers and stuff like that. Um, some other interesting questions, you know, are like that I've heard utilities talk about are like um, odor control in the collection system and like being able to predict like where that might occur. So you could like better target order control practices. Um, SSO prevention, um, that's like another one that I've thought of. So yeah, just sort of coming up with something that has a big impact, um, at least initially where we are in the industry. I don't think like without that, it's gonna be hard to, to get things moving just because there's so many other competing interests for available funding for, for a project like that. So yeah, so pick something important and interesting and relevant. And then the second thing is kind of like, make sure that there isn't a simpler way to do it. And that also sounds kind of obvious, but like, for example, um, with that, like some people want to use machine learning to like paste a chemical feeds for like alum addition or um, carbon addition. And they're, Using a sensor to measure that parameter in real time is, and there's like stoichiometry then associated with like what you're trying to do. So I wouldn't, I don't usually think of machine learning as necessary um, for like a system where you understand the science of it pretty well. HRSD is um, using uh, machine learning to actually taste chemical feed, but they have kind of like a unique situation where the location where they feed the chemical doesn't behave in a way that follows general stoichiometry. So there's like more going on. Um, so if you know that about your system, then sure, like go to the next level, but just make sure that 
you don't that you absolutely have to because it is more complicated yeah um yeah so the the second step then really is what i call like desktop modeling and um that's getting kind of a, a static data set um for the Raleigh Water Project, for instance, we got five years of hourly flow data. And that was, that's our answer. That's what we want to be able to predict. And then um, I downloaded from USGS, um, like a bunch of stream flow data um, for streams in the area. And I was looking for, like, you know, that like groundwater, basically like leaks in the pipes are why the flow goes up when it rains but there wasn't any groundwater table data available. There is some in USGS, but not for the area that, that we were looking at. So it's kind of like, well, you got to find something that like you think might be a good proxy for the things that you know matter about the system you're trying to model. Um, so we went with stream flow that obviously like goes up and down in response to rain too. And yeah. then the other variable was, was rainfall. Um, so down, so it's just like you, you start gathering the data that you have and or additional data that you think might help to explain the problem that you're looking at. Um, and then sometimes you want to like make your own metrics too. Like you, um, for example, BioP is a um, system that is hard to model. And um, we came up with this metric that's like the um, pounds of phosphorus removed per pound of alum added. And this is for a facility, obviously, that has to that uses alum intermittently to um, meet a total phosphorus limit. But the idea is like if that number is high. It means that you removed a bunch of phosphorus with very little alum, and that would be indicative of good biological phosphorus removal. And when that number is low, um, it would mean that you um, needed more alum to achieve the same level of phosphorus removal. So anyway, step two is really just about creating the desktop model. And when people say machine learning, I think that's like the stuff that everybody commonly thinks about. You have data, um, you run it through a bunch of different algorithms, and then you quantify the accuracy of that algorithm at predicting your target variable, um, which in our case was influent flow to the treatment plant. And assuming that you get like a good accuracy metric, then you can like proceed to the next step. And then the third step is like, okay, I have a model that I want to deploy. So I made it to this point. So that's great. How do I do that? So it requires two things. Um, you have to set up like a real time data feed. And um, this was something that I like really knew nothing about and learned through the Raleigh Water Project. So a lot of people are familiar with the first step of like, you can use SQL databases to um, gather information from a lot of places through APIs. So like our stream flow data from USGS and our weather data, that all gets loaded directly into a SQL database. Uh, we also needed some information from the treatment plan itself. Um, like we needed the past 12 hours of flow. Um, I think that's only, yeah, that's only variable specifically from the treatment plant. But we also got some operational data to put into our visualization. So you have to have like a data engineer or somebody that knows, or a SQL database expert, you know, that knows how to query those other data sources and like bring everything together in one location. So that the end product of that is like you have a table and every hour or something, there's one row of data in the same order that you need to feed into your model. 
But then how do you get it to your model? So that's this other field called data engineering. And um, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Uh, the probably most like quote unquote professional, but also complicated and expensive way is to use like a cloud-based service like Microsoft Azure or Amazon Web Services. Um, and so there's, I don't know that much about this area, but you know, there's people that that is what they do for a living. They um, set up models in the cloud and they set up these pipelines of like, okay, um, every hour this row of data goes into a virtual machine that hosts my Python script and the output of that Python script then is returned back to this location. In, in our case, is a SQL database again. Um, is that making sense? So yeah, far. yeah. So, okay, let me let me sum it up. As I, you think of a problem worthy of solving that can be solved in a in a simple way, you uh, you set up a model. Is that step two? Yeah. Step three is you feed in the data you need for that model, and uh, step four. What's step four now? Yes, step three and four can kind of be done concurrently. Um, so step three is like. Right, uh, getting a result from your model every hour. But then like, it's in a SQL database, big deal. Like nobody wants to learn how to query that and no, look at this no weird table to, of stuff. <laughs> no one wants so to look at Python, to, you know. Right, yes. <laughs> so we took care of that step, we automated that. But then you have to get your, your model into like a presentable, easy to use interface that is gonna make sense to somebody who didn't work on your project. Yeah. So that's making a visual. Um, or so generally like, you know, like a website you go to or a software package you open on your computer. Um, so for Raleigh Water, we did this through Power BI. It's um, a nice way to visualize data and you can make all these customized screens. Um, so we have 15 screens, but like one of the main ones is just a display of the flow for the last three days. And then it's got a, another line attached to that that is like, okay, this is your flow projection for the next 72 hours. So if that's all it did, it would be doing its job, right? Like every hour you can look at that screen and say, and visually see, okay, the flow is going to get as high as, I don't know, 155 MDB, that's usually 48. So that alone like lets you do some planning. Um, but you also wanna think about any other visualizations um, that are helpful. So we have like a sensitivity analysis screen where um, in addition to the one model, we actually run 10 other models of like varying the rainfall and the distribution of the rainfall. So you can see um, what other outcomes like might happen. Um, and then you want some screens that would like track the accuracy of your model. So it looks back in time and says, you know, you can just visually see, okay, this is what the model predicted would happen 12 hours in advance, but this is what actually happened. How close are those two lines together? Um, and then they have a screen for like, actually um, it shows that hydrograph shape and it allows this user to like move this horizontal line up and down, which represents the flow target to the BNR basin. And so like the volume above that line is what goes into the equalization basin. Um, and so that's what they use to like check to make sure that they're not going to exceed the capacity. Um, so you just want to like think through what are all the different ways somebody's going to use this tool and like give them a visual way to see that so it's useful. So that's yeah. good for. Nice. This is a uh, yeah. This is interesting. It seems like this machine learning or or just the idea of predictive modeling. And I don't know if it's you know a lot of it's 
global warming, you know, or, or climate change or whatever is making people think like what's going to happen next. But it's, I, I see it in like modeling wildfires. I see it in, you know, weather prediction in, uh, you know, extreme weather events and, and hurricane, you know, you know, this is just like the direction we're going is, is trying to get technology to, to give us insight into what our future holds. And so it's, yeah, it's interesting. How does uh, this machine learning and thanks for the thanks for the walkthrough of the project. And the whole time I was thinking of this is like this is just what Facebook does. And the problem is like, how do we sell you something? Okay, we get all your data, we put it in a model, we get continuous feeds of what you're doing online, and then we give you a visual of like buy these shoes, you know, according to what you yeah. what you want. Yeah, no. So yeah, the whole time I'm like, this is how they're selling me all this junk online. I, I should. <laughs> Thanks for the, uh, thanks. it's not going to stop, but I now at least I know why I do it. But uh, yeah, how does this, uh, we hear about machine learning and then there's this AI, artificial intelligence. Are they related or how do they, how do they relate or do they? Yeah. So artificial intelligence is, I guess, just like a broader term. And then like machine learning is a subtype or a subcategory under artificial intelligence. Yeah, I can't actually think of like what else is under AI, but maybe those like robots that clean your house. Yeah. Like I, need one of those. And stuff. I need one of those. I guess there's a lot of like the smart fridges. I don't know. Like those things don't use machine learning, but they use something. So yeah. yeah. The thing that makes me mad about those robots that clean your house, uh, the vacuum cleaners is the company's called iRobot. And I'm like, iRobot, but it's just a vacuum cleaner. I'm like, you took the best name, right? iRobot should be an army oh. of robots, right? It should be so much more, <laughs> but it's just a vacuum cleaner that goes through your house. I'm like, you stole the best name, iRobot, and you just it's just a vacuum. It makes me mad. But I digress. Really funny. Yeah. All right. Sorry, would it be okay? I wanted to say something about the forest fires thing that you brought up. Yeah, and, yeah, go um, ahead. I, I just, yeah, that's like super fascinating. I. I was really interested in that too because um, uh, my colleague told me that there was like an effort underway to use uh, machine learning to predict like where forest fires would um, happen and like where they would be the worst so that like a targeted um, approach could happen to, uh, and, and it was just really fascinating. Like, so I learned a little bit about the models and it's actually like satellite imagery data is like a huge part of those models. And um, it also made me think like, my goodness, so in our industry, we've had a lot of concern about um, instrumentation and like maintaining it and like what happens if I'm using a ammonia sensor in a program and it stops working or it gives a bad signal. And those are valid problems, but I, I do think they're very, very solvable. And something that should give us confidence is like this algorithm is using an instrument that is in space. Like, you know, like that is hard to service, right? Like, I don't know what you do if that stops working, but, um, you know, we can have reliable programs um, off of that level of instrumentation. I think we can figure out if it's the instrument physically lives like in our facility, um, not to like say that's not a problem or a challenge, but it's, it's solvable. Yeah. Yeah, we've done some of that at our plant here of trying to predict our probe uh, reliability and when they're they're out of whack and when you know when they might need servicing or, or smarter people than I working on it, but uh, developing just what you're talking about. 
there's so much data out there. I think now we're figuring out like we got all this data. How can we combine it in ways to give us a, a solution to something? And first, I think the hardest part is that step one of figuring out what's the question to ask mm-hmm. and, and then putting it all into play. Yeah, what do you see in the, you know, you talk about the forest fire thing. What do you uh, see for the future of machine learning? you see it growing? Do you see it changing? What do you think is, the future holds? Yeah, I, I definitely think that machine learning as a tool is going to expand a lot um, over the next decade across the water industry and across lots of different industries. I think it's to the benefit of, yeah, really everyone to be able to get information about some of these uh, challenging questions where there is science involved and where we can create a, a representative model. Um, yeah, just how can we get these tools to people? And then I think it will just sort of grow from there. I don't have like a grandiose, I guess, master vision of all <laughs> the different things we should be doing, but. That would be um, scary. It'd be kind of scary if you did have this grandiose master <laughs> vision. <laughs> but yeah, no. more of it and we're going to get better and better. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, thanks, Kadia. I, uh, I, this was enlightening. I uh, enjoyed the conversation on machine learning. It's an area I've heard a lot about, but don't know a lot about. But, uh, and I still have a lot to learn, but I've learned a lot today from you. So thanks for uh, sharing it with us. Oh, yeah. No, thank you for having me. It was fun. You bet. I didn't know I, anything about the oysters, so that was really cool to, to learn <laughs> you have about. To, you have to try oysters, both of them. I don't like them. My friend, he always eats them in airports, and I'm like, I'm not eating a Ooh. slimy oyster in an airport. That's That has yeah. food poisoning written all over it, but he, he claims they're <laughs> great. He, it's like a delicacy, I guess. But, uh, yeah, well, we'll have to try them and tell each other uh, how how it went. But are you ready for the quiz now, Kaki? Yeah. Okay. Sure. All right. Nervous. Well, yeah, everyone gets nervous, but it's a three-question quiz. This one, of course, is on machine. It's a machine trivia quiz because we're talking about machine learning. So uh, question number one, uh, IBM stands for International Business Machines. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, that's IBM. What does the pharmacy chain CVS, what does CVS stand for in the pharmacy chain's name? Is it A, consumer value stores, B, coordinated vaccine supply, C, chemistry valet service, or D, Cashier value system. What does CVS stand for? I would guess A. A, consumer value stores. Uh, you got it. You got that one right. Oh, yeah. Okay. You're one <laughs> for one. On to question two. In Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, what is the name of the artificial neural network-based superintelligence system that serves as the antagonistic force of the Terminator franchise. So uh, that was that was a lot of words there, but uh, the artificial neural network that's fighting against uh, the good guys in the Terminator franchise is A, Jarvis, B, uh, Jinx, C, Skynet, or D, HAL 9000. What is the artificial neural network? Uh, is it D? D, HAL 9000. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, Katya, that is incorrect. That <laughs> is from, uh, I think that's from a space odyssey or something. It is Skynet. Skynet is the... Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. 
But you're want your your fifty percent. You can get it on the winning. Something though, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it, it wasn't was, like it was real. Yeah, that was the only other one that it was, was real. Decent, yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. Last question: How many steps are in the Rube Goldberg machine? You know, are you familiar with the Rube Goldberg machine? I have heard of it. I thought it was more like a concept than an actual machine. So anyway, I'll probably get this one wrong too. No, no, don't. Now, now you're beating yourself up. So a Rube Goldberg machine, I think it just does like a series of steps of just, uh, they don't really mean anything, but it, they just, it keeps going. It's like a machine that just keeps step after step. So anyway, how many steps are in the oh, Rube Goldberg okay. machine that holds the Guinness record for being the largest Rube Goldberg machine? Is it uh, A, four, four steps, B, 42, C, 427, or D, 4,275. How many steps in the largest uh, Rube Goldberg machine? I'll go with C. C, 427? Yes. You got that one right. All right, you are you are uh, two out of three. That is very <laughs> respectable for the quiz. And uh, good job. Thank you for uh, being on the program, Katya. And uh, for our thank listeners, you. thanks for listening. Uh, thank you to the uh, Colorado Wastewater Utility Council and the Rocky Mountain Water Environment Association for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, if you have ideas for topics or uh, guests or show ideas, uh, you can send them to me at, uh, now I forgot my own email address. It's uh, streamingwater at mail.com is what it is. So send them my way. If you have ideas or if you'd like to be a guest on the show and have an, an interesting topic uh, like machine learning or uh, something else that, that uh, is interesting to the water and wastewater community, uh, thanks for listening. Um, and we will see you next time on the Streaming Water Podcast. Thanks for being here, Katya. Yeah, thank you so much, Blair. All right. Thank you to your listeners.